patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody, and welcome to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylosky. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. If you haven't already, please make sure you hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss a single episode. We've got a lot of more great content coming up, and we've got our special episode coming up next week. Next week is usually an interview episode, but I put together something really, really special because next week will mark our one-year anniversary of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm super-duper excited about that. Whether you are listening to this episode for the first time or since episode one, uh, this will be a really great first-year episode to cap off what has truly been a very meaningful first year, a very impactful first year, not just for myself, but I know for all of you and for our guests and just a lot of people who have been a big part of this journey. And this journey will continue on uh, for years and years to come. And I, I guarantee you that it's going to be a really great culmination of a uh, number of in, uh, great moments of the past year. I won't spoil it too much for you this week. You'll have to tune in next week when it's released. But I wanted to give you a bit of a sneak preview. Uh, so make sure you mark the calendars for August 30th, 2021. Uh, technically, the 31st is the one-year mark, but we will be doing it on the, the Monday since we have episodes released on Mondays. Now, today's episode is a bit of a unique one. We hear a lot about the U.S.-China tensions that have been going on, whether it's on trade or IP, on security. Think of South China Sea or Taiwan as hot topic issues. What really has culminated, though, throughout the last 150 years or so since we've started into some kind of engagement with China? Now, it's a bit difficult to pinpoint exactly when the U.S. started engaging in commercial trade and really uh, these relations with China. But it's really the first mission that the U.S. sent to China that I think is a really good starting point. And I've, I've decided to look more into this because I was curious to see, are there any patterns that are emerging from that era and are translating to what we're seeing now? And I think some of the things you'll be hearing today will surprise you. Just as surprised me. It all centers around one man who I'm not going to label as a protagonist uh, per se, but it's he's more of someone who I think represents a culmination of different you know, positives and negatives about understanding China. There was a man named Caleb Cushing. Cushing was a Democrat politician who served as a congressman from Massachusetts. He was actually a very prolific politician. Uh, he was grew up in Salisbury, Massachusetts, uh, born into a pretty wealthy family. 
And he was basically someone who was very dedicated to this idea of American expansionism. And this was a this is not an uncommon uh, thing to believe in. The Manifest Destiny, as some of you might recall, was that idea that America should be spreading one's borders from sea to sea. Cushing was someone who not only was heavily involved in politics, but obviously in commerce. I mentioned that he comes from a wealthy family. His father was a, a wealthy shipbuilder and merchant. And Cushing starts his career in politics as a congressman, um, actually started in the state legislature, uh, but he eventually moved on to uh, being part of the cabinet of uh, President John Tyler, John Tyler was the president who took over after William Henry Harrison died after only about a month in office uh, due to pneumonia. Um, and Tyler, Tyler's not really the main president here. Um, Cushing uh, was was selected as the first U.S. minister to China and started on June 12, 1844. Now, before that, though, this is what's really, really critical. The reason why Cushing is an important character in this story that I'm about to tell you is that there was one man who was even more influential, and perhaps I would argue probably more influential than the president himself, and that was Secretary of State Daniel Webster. Webster was a prominent senator, a really great orator, a very, very powerful man, very well admired in the Washington establishment. And Secretary Webster had a one mission, practically, for Cushing. He basically said to him, Sir, we've got the British who are engaged in this opium war on China. We've had trade with China, but boy, boy these, these Brits, they're really really making a lot of money on trade. And they're just absolutely demolishing the Chinese, whether it's on technology, military technology and force and power, or just really the trade gap between Britain and China. So they're just making so much money. We got to do something about that. That's what Webster was essentially saying to Cushing. He said, your job is to make as great of a deal as the British made with the Chinese. And so, Cushing was given this monumental task to negotiate the first American treaty with China. And remember, Cushing, like I said earlier, he's a big commerce guy. And he was right on board with this idea. He knew that if he were to get this right, he was going to make a lot of money. And he thought that the United States would prosper because of this amazing deal that he was going to strike. On June 17th, 1843, so about a year before he technically starts his job as the U.S. Minister to China, Cushing attends a dinner at Faneuil Hall in Boston. Faneuil Hall being where so many of those great American revolutionaries used to hold rallies and speeches and protests against the British. And this was an, a special event to dedicate a, a monument to be erected for Bunker Hill, uh, named after the fa famous battle that happened during the American Revolution. Included, of course, Secretary of State Daniel Webster and President John Tyler. What's interesting is that 
Cushing stands and he, he's about to give a speech. Let me just quote some of the things that he mentions in this speech that, in Faneuil Hall. He said that he believes that the West was experiencing something different from what's happening in the East. He believes that although so much of history was being flowed from the East to the West, all that technology, all those inventions that you can imagine the Chinese invented a long time ago, he said that it's now going the other way. He believes that knowledge, quote, knowledge is being rolled back from the West to the East, unquote. He continues to say, quote, we have become the teacher of our teachers. And then he turns to President Tyler. He says, I go to China, sir, if I may so express myself, on behalf of civilization, unquote. Now, first of all, that sounds a little pompous to me, doesn't it? Uh, but it's not really about the, the pompous nature, pompous sounding nature of what he's saying. He effectively believes that the United States has a major, essentially a major education and technology advantage over China. And he thinks that this is going to be uh, the center of a huge treaty with China to expand trade with the nation, to make people more wealthy and to expand prosperity across America's um, across American territories. He also said that this was not going to be any, just any sort of trade deal. Cushing really believed that uh, this was something that he had to frame it in a nicer way, I think. And perhaps not just in a nicer way, but I think it was also a result of his lack of understanding of Chinese culture. He said that he was going to, quote, bring nearer together the civilization of the old and new worlds, unquote. Now, again, setting aside from how pompous that sounds, this, I think, really points to a larger misunderstanding that the U.S. had about China. They thought that because China was so beaten down, be, just beaten like a dead horse almost, with what was happening between China and Great Britain, they thought that they were just going to seal this deal and be able to enjoy the fruits of this economic growth for years to come. Well, that, that did actually happen to some degree. In 1844, the Treaty of Wangxia was uh, was passed, uh, was ratified eventually by President Tyler in 1845. But here, let's we need to walk back a little bit here. I just mentioned that the treaty did occur, and the treaty contains a number of things. It essentially gave the U.S. a huge edge over China on trading rules, including uh, the uh, fixed tariffs on trade. Um, U.S. receiving um, the most favored nation status, um, extraterritoriality, which is about uh, trying uh, and punishing people under uh, Chinese law or or American law, um, the right to buy land in the major ports. Webster was really, really pushing Cushing on expanding the trade to 
five major ports, at least, in China. But what's really dangerous about just thinking that it was, it was all over is that the the whole the underlying process by which this treaty was created, signed, passed, and ratified underlines the fundamental nature of what happens when the U.S. doesn't understand its counterparts. And I'll give you an example. You have to remember that in the 1840s at the time, America was in the middle of so many technological innovations. Think of the steam steamboat. Think of the the uh, the old trains, the locomotives that would eventually be developed even more in the years to come. The daguerreotype, the first essentially photograph technology. A lot of things were eventually coming up. The telegraph. Think of Samuel Morse. A lot of these technologies were being developed and. And Cushing and Webster and his their, their whole team really felt that if they were to pass along this technology to the Chinese in hopes of pleasing them and maybe treat the Americans better than what the Chinese how the Chinese feel about the British, and they feel then the Americans would all of a sudden feel better about themselves, and uh, they wouldn't have to maybe engage in such a war like the Opium War. And that problem, that misunderstanding, I think still trickles into today. I'll get to that in a second. But this was the thinking that Cushing and Webster and all those folks had. I go back to that Faneuil Hall dinner I just mentioned. You know, Cushing, I don't think, understood that he had a huge, huge tall order ahead. I'm not going to blame him alone for not understanding the minute differences, but also the major differences between Chinese culture and American culture. Um, yeah, I've read that he he read a lot of books on his way to China. And look, I'm not against books. I'm not reading against books to understand more about an issue. Well, I mean, you're the minister of China. You might want to know something about China. I, I, my impression is that I, I think, although it was a very different time, and I, again, I'm not blaming 100% on Cushing and Webster, but the moves that this team was making under President Tyler, in the long term, I think had very serious implications that were not understood. And I don't think that it's enough to just say, well, it's just about the technology. You have to understand that Cushing, from what he read, he really, you know, his main thing was, I need to pinpoint exactly why the Chinese need to make a deal with us. And so he tried to show how, how big and wealthy America was with his warships that carried all this stuff, all this, all these goods and gifts and that clearly the Chinese population had a lot of admiration for. He even said, if China doesn't uh, send an envoy, it's going to make make you look really, really bad. Make you look like you, you don't even want to play. You don't even want to play part of this game uh, here in this world about trade and commerce. 
he really wanted to talk to the emperor at the time, which was considered um, a very, very direct threat, essentially, because the emperor, as you probably imagine, in China is one who makes all the decisions. It's not the, it's not, you know, he's the uh, don't call me, I call you sort of guy. Now, all of this really boils down to, to a few things here. Number one is that while Cushing and Webster did make a push, technically, on understanding China and their counterparts, but the reality is that I don't think they saw the long game. And I do think it's very clear that with uh, the limited resources, and it was a different time period too, that's that's understandable, but I, I don't think Webster really had a lot of people whom he can speak to and to really understand, okay, well, what are the not only what are the best interests for making a deal, but what is the mindset that the Chinese have beyond just this administration? And they sent, they said that they spoke to they as in Webster and Cushing, they spoke to traders and but Remember, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the commercialization. A lot of these merchants, American merchants, they just want to make money, right? And so, what re- is there really a lot of value in asking them, well, how do we preserve American values while expanding trade when all these merchants are essentially saying, we just want a place to live, we want a uh, place to live in the ports so that we can just keep making all this money? They didn't care about this long-term game where understanding the Chinese mindset, they just want to profit from it. I I speak about you know the story of Caleb Cushing and Daniel Webster and the Tyler administration. Uh, not because this is really the only episode where we misunderstood China, but I think it really highlights just some of the issues that came to play. I go back to this whole preface of this whole of this whole problem, which is China recognized this relationship between Great Britain and itself as an unequal treaty. They were absolutely getting hammered on these terms for on trade, and the Americans did pretty much the exact same thing. Fast forward a hundred and seventy, hundred eighty years later, we think it's all in the rearview mirror. But China never forgot. In fact, during that time of the treaty, they've always recognized that they needed to get back at the United States. They never saw the United States as an equal. Never saw, they never believed in what Cushing would have said about bringing new and old civilizations together. They never believed that ever. According to a University of Delaware professor, Wang Yuanchong, he provides a, a very interesting analysis of the diplomacy and the language that was being used during that treaty. While the text sounds really great, uh, and it sound, and the English translation says that you know the the China that China and the U.S. are not superior or inferior over one another. In, in, in the Chinese translation, initially the text would have read something like great mountains and great rivers. 
in the Chinese translation, they're they're considered imperial lands. While the American description of rivers and mountains that are equally large, it's kind of pretty much the language that they're using. Instead, the Chinese translation says as humble places, essentially belittling the United States in their own translation. In their minds, they never, ever imagined that they were going to just all of a sudden get along with the U.S. and everyone's going to be really, really, really happy. Never, ever saw that. Which brings me to a reflection of some big takeaways, I think, from this story. And, I, and there's so many more details about uh, some of the negotiations, um, the, the reaction from the public in China, uh, not to mention there was actually a, a skirmish between the Chinese and the Americans at the American consul in, in China. Uh, there was a bit of a spat there. It, it just didn't seem very rosy compared to the way that Cushing, Webster, and the Thai administration tried to form it. And I want to leave now with some main takeaways. And this is why I think for this podcast and I think for public discourse in America, we really need to be a lot more understanding and focused on why the Chinese play that long game and why if we don't understand the Chinese mentality, mindset, and long game, we are going to be in serious trouble. The first takeaway is the, the obsession of commercial expansion at all costs to China is not new in American history. I mentioned earlier how Webster and Cushing were two guys. And look, I admire Webster for a lot of things. On this front, I do not agree with what he, he did. Now, again, he had more limited information. However, it would have been more helpful had they taken a bit more time. But Perhaps because of politics, because of the lobbying that was happening, might have been impossible. I just, I just say that for for those two gentlemen and for many in, in the U.S. at the time, who knew that this obsession of commercial expansion to the U.S. Think about all the industries that have moved over to China. How factories in the United States have been moved overseas, just long gone. Just look at parts of the United States. And how particular parts have been completely left out, have lost so many manufacturing jobs when you can, when you can hardly find a made in USA sticker anymore. Number two is China has been eyeing American technology as a threat to its supremacy for years and years. I believe that this episode that I've outlined today for you is a good example of that. They saw that the Americans were developing the technology. This is why Xi Jinping, in 2018, a previously unknown speech, said that you know, core technologies are important instruments of the state. He toured high-tech facilities. He believed that self-reliance is a key part of China's ideology. And that's why China has been investing so much money in their technology because they remember that when they felt humiliated, they knew that they had they they wanted to retaliate and show that what the United States did and what the Americans what the British did in their minds they thought it was a big mistake. 
And now they want to turn the tables. They want to not only go after our values, they want to take our money away. This is what the CCP is after us for. Um, it's it's very it, it does you don't need to say that well that was a very different time, right? I mean the the if Qin Dynasty was around at the time, that psyche has not changed very much, if at all. And that's what I'm trying to get at. American technology has always been a thorn at the side of China, and that's why China doesn't care about intellectual property. They don't care about any of this. It doesn't make money if they follow rules and international norms. It doesn't help the state. The state wants to protect itself. We need to be really, really vigilant and care about our technology and the invention and the innovation that a lot of people have made, sometimes for countless hours. If you've ever watched TV shows of entrepreneurs um, uh, and you see how much work can be taken away because of a, of a state that, that has this ideology of seizing technology for its own good. That is what we're confronting nowadays. Number three, and I'll leave you all with this. We need more Americans than ever before to understand Chinese history, culture, and politics. One provision in this treaty that I think is very interesting, and it's probably not on purpose for that time, but it essentially allowed the learning of the Chinese language again, in part because the anti-Chinese sentiment or anti-foreign sentiment. And so this was kind of a way for them to, um, to uh, I mean, for the money side, really, the main thing is for the communication, because if you have lower barriers of communication, uh, you know, merchants and traders, they might be able to uh, make more money and interact with Chinese counterparts. I'm going to take that provision of this treaty and say, Learn the Chinese language if you can. Encourage people to take in lessons about China because if we don't understand why the Chinese behave the way they do, we are going to be in just in absolutely in the dumps. And we're not going to feel that we're going to have any control over our destiny or the dest or a peaceful uh, world. We're gonna be. Uh, we would lose alliances. Uh, we would lose jobs, our livelihoods, and freedom. There's there's a lot at stake here. The Chinese have, have a saying, and I'll never forget this. When my mother taught me this for the very first time, I'll say it in Chinese, and I'll I'll translate it for all of you. It says, "Yi shan nan rong er hu," which means on. On a mountaintop, you cannot have more than one tiger. You can't have two tigers on that same mountain, which means one of them is going to win. That's what the Chinese believe. We need to understand that. We can't be engaged in this perpetual, you know, side by side, we're just living our own worlds and we're just, it's just a competition, you know, who wins, who loses. I I don't agree with that. And And I hope that. You know, I want people to think for themselves. But I, but when you hear a story, when you hear about what the Chinese were thinking at the time, when you you've got you've they've concocted a scheme to seize American technology to try and to fool 
an administration to thinking that by giving them technology, the Chinese are just going to be nice to Americans. Think about how what, what how that thinking has taken us. It's gotten us a bad path to a sense of consent of just surrender. It's a real problem. And if we have more knowledge, the advantage of the United States is because of the nature of who we are. If we pursue knowledge and wisdom and understanding of why they think this way, we can combat adversity. We can defeat those who seek to take our livelihoods and our economy and our way of life away. We can do all of those, but we need to be absolutely focused and we need to push for more instruction about the Chinese language so that more Americans can understand, can understand the story involving Caleb Cushing and the Tyler administration uh, of this, the, the treaty. And we understand that way we understand that the treaty of Wanxia is not the, just of just an old historical treaty that, that has no meaning. It has. I think it should carry a lot of meaning. We should care about the history that we read about. We should care about our country's history, and be be open minded, have conversations. But what we've seen already over the last few decades, we've seen how a bad sort of thinking, thinking that China could be a democratic power, it has not worked out for us. It just hasn't. I hope that this episode and many more to come will will be able to. Increase our knowledge and wariness of of a, of a dystopian power that is encroaching on America, and we have to do everything we can to stop that. And we must and will do this together as one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to look out for that one-year anniversary episode coming up next week. I look forward to hearing from you then. Have a great rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. Until next time.